Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 78, I speak with Steve Pastor, founder and CEO of Kings of Neon. It grew over 155% last financial year to do $4.62 million in annual revenue and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. Why he tried everything in his early days, chasing the most money, from buying and selling on eBay, to real estate, to working deep underground in mining, to jewellery retail and more. We discuss how his DJ business went to zero overnight during COVID and how out of desperation he looked for the next opportunity to survive. Seeing the popularity of neon signs at his events gave him the idea to start selling neon signs to businesses, which has now become a global business with teams in the USA and UK. Why he trusted someone in their early 20s to run his US sales operations, why he wants to disrupt the signage industry, self-service b2b purchasing is a future of b2b sales and e-commerce and much more if you're looking for high quality custom led neon signs check out kingsofneon.com.au that's k-i-n-g-s-o-f-n-e-o-n.com.au all right so i'm here with steve pastor the ceo and founder of kings of neon welcome to the podcast thanks derek thanks for having me that's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Kings of Neon? What did you study? What were some of the early jobs or work that you did? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess like gr- growing up on the Central Coast, uh, New South Wales. So um, it's kind of like, you know, pretty average family, you know, in a sense, like, you know, we're kind of hardworking, but nothing too sort of crazy there as well. Um, very much like entrepreneurial. So I was always kind of like dabbling here and there. So I started obviously the paper runs and and that sort of thing. But then I moved into uh, like, I guess the entrepreneurial in me, I was like early, early days, I was selling things on eBay. Like I was trying to find little nuances uh, with uh, snowboards and, and different things like that as well. Um, then obviously as I sort of moved through school life, uh, it works, you know, anywhere from Coles. Um, when I finished Coles and the pizza jobs, I moved on to uh, real estate. So I did a uh, traineeship in real estate with Ray White uh, for a couple of years. I went and did the mines. I worked in the WA and was an underground diamond driller uh, for a year or so. Uh, then I moved over to fitness, fitness first. Um, and then my longest stint was with Michael Hill Jewelers. So I was in management, uh, you know, management of teams, um, both in Australia and New Zealand uh, there. And then previously, just before uh, we started Kings, um, I actually, you know, I get, gave up the nine to five job. I didn't want it anymore. I thought there was a better way of life. And in essence, I actually became a DJ. So I was, uh, in theory, a wedding DJ. Um, just wanted to do something different and, and do something for myself. Uh, and then uh, a set of circumstances happen, e.g. COVID, and that's what launched Kings and Ale. So, and so if we go all the way back, were you surrounded by friends and family as a teenager who were entrepreneurial or were you the outlier and everyone thought you were crazy, but they just kind of let you go and do your own thing, trying to buy and sell things and run little sort of side businesses? 
Yeah, I think dad was always like a dreamer. Um, he's, he's still always had his steady jobs, he, uh, but he had, I guess, those little side entrepreneurial ventures uh, that he tried, you know. Um, I think one of them was like a swap club back in the day where you kind of like connect all business leaders together and things like that. So he was definitely the dreamer and the entrepreneurial piece in it. Um, but yeah, definitely not a definitely not a, a family that kind of, you know, reveled in business, so to speak. And what about other people in the community? Did they, you know, you're young, you're having a go, were they supportive or did everyone think you're a little bit odd? Uh, I think it was I think it was a little bit odd, right? I was just like, um, I don't know, again, I'd like I took on that dreamer element as well. Um, I think just everyone saw my head just worked a little bit faster. I hated losing, like hated losing. It was like that typical, you know, you play me in a board game or a card game or whatever it be. I'd, I'd either win or absolutely chuck my uh, toys out of the pram. So um, that was kind of that was kind of me. So it was like whichever way I could kind of figure out a way to win or earn an extra buck. Um, I was always sort of that kid that would, you know, I had a million jobs and different ways to sort of earn money in any way, shape or form. And how would you decide between these opportunities? Because they're all quite varied from real estate to working different jobs to buy and sell um, and sort of retail. Were you seeing, could you quickly make money out of it? Were you looking, does it sort of scale or were you looking for like you kind of lose interest and then you're just looking for uh, the novelty element of the next adventure? I think I was just just trying to work it out right like we didn't necessarily come from a an abundant childhood where you know cash was flowing um so to speak so a, a big driver for me was just having enough money so it wasn't a thing like it was always a thing in our household uh which kind of it just sucked you know it wasn't it wasn't nice to see your parents kind of talking about money in a negative way all the time so i think that definitely drove my early entrepreneurial ventures and it still drives me today. Um, so it wasn't strategic in any way. It was literally if I saw an opportunity, if I heard a thing or you know, I went to the mines, like I'm six foot three and, you know, at the time sort of 80 kilos, like tall, skinny, like hadn't done any laborsome work in my life. And I literally went to possibly one of the most laborsome environments, you know, that you can get, um, in Australia and like works two kilometers, you know, underground, you know, in the pitch black, you know, just lifting rods and, and, uh, and dirt all day. So, and rocks. So it's, um, I literally just chased the cash and that's pretty much been even to an extent, the way we started Kings and Neon as well. It's just, uh, it's not necessarily strategic. It was just sort of seeing an opportunity and, and jumping at it. So if someone said this nine to five job pays really well, you think you would have sort of stayed with that or in the back of your mind, you always thought having a business is always the most uncapped potential. So if a job was good, I'll do it for a while, but, but longer term, I always know you always knew that your destiny was to sort of run your own business. I think, yeah, I think like definitely my destiny was to run my own business and do my own thing. Um, I think, but for me, and I think for a lot of people as well, you know, we search for stability. Um, so I was definitely searching for stability. I was trying to climb the corporate ladder. Um, but what kind of happened with all of that, there was continuously times in each sort of job, um, that I sort of stayed with at a tenure for at least a couple of years where I was being suppressed. So it was like, well, this particular element about your personality, this particular piece about you, we don't like the way you do this or how you do this, or you need to fit into this box. And it's like, well, 
screw that. Like, I don't want to. There was an example where you sort of bumped up against um, a manager, a colleague, and you felt that they were sort of holding you back or wanting you to change in a way that wasn't good. Uh, I guess uh, so. Early days at Fitness First, I had awesome manager over there. I still sort of connect with him today, but I remember a vivid conversation at the age of, I think I was like oh, 21 or whichever there. And I just wanted to take on the world. I wanted like, give me a, give me my own fitness first. I'll run it better than you, all you guys, you know, screw you, you know, just uh, full bravado. And uh, in essence, he just came up to me and said, look, you know what you need to do, Steve, is you need to go away for five years and then come back because no one's going to hire you at your age to look after a club. He goes, I think you're great, but you're too young. And it's like, cool. You know, like to speak to someone that's ambitious in that way, shape or form, um, it's quite debilitating. And there's a numerous sort of examples of that throughout the career. So. So, so it wasn't a positive, like, you know, sell a hundred gym memberships in the next three months and then we'll have a conversation about other elements of business. It was just, yeah, come off, come back when you're five years older and then we'll, we'll maybe chat yeah. dismissive, get lost and, you know, grow up sort of comment. Yeah. It was like, yeah, like, but in the nicest way, it was more just like, it was more just sort of picturing the world. Like, I guess this is a bit of corporate as well. It's like, you got to fit into this box and you got to be this person and this is how you should act. And then once you're that, you can become this. Um, you know, Michael Hill, um, again, great company, but consistently I was the top performer. Um, you know, top manager in the in the sort of the group and, and whichever else running the highest sort of uh, stores. But um, I didn't I didn't fit with the the general consensus of this is what the next layer of management looks like. Um, I was too cowboy, as they sort of said it. So. Yeah. So they wanted more of a suit and tie corporate MBA and you were a bit more entrepreneurial. I'm growing the business. I'm growing revenues. Margins are good. Like that should be enough. But they said, no, you actually need to do this PowerPoint presentation and, you know. Act- yeah, I'm not very, I'm not very good at sucking up. Put it that way. Derek, I'm not very good at sucking up. So it's, uh, it's probably a little bit of, uh, not that I'm here to self-diagnose myself, but a little bit of autistic Asperger kind of elements where. I just look at the result and the easiest way to get there. And I, I miss a few things, uh, as the blinkers are going off. Did you ever work for a more entrepreneurial company that sort of got it or were they more large corporates or like a franchise sort of network? So they're in the essence, quiet procedures, systems, processes. They weren't like you were the two I see for entre- a scrappy entrepreneur who would sort of give you that free reign. Yeah. Unfortunately I didn't. Um, I think again, I was always searching for the money and, Typically, the larger corporates uh, gave me the option to sort of make decent money to start off with, but then also over a longer time period, I could earn more as well. And and so what was the moment where you realized you were going to work? Like you had a lot of side jobs and side businesses and and like different um, things that you tried. When when did you really sort of um, decide you were going to go all in on Kings of Neon? Yeah, so I guess like it's two elements where um, obviously finishing up with Michael Hill Jewelers, that was kind of that point where uh, there was a few people in the the ecosystem that were leaving and there was a changing of the guards and um, I guess that freedom was really constricting. So it, it felt like it was time um, to move on and I was unsure if I'd go back into real estate because that's a bit of a love for me um, or um, I'd look at a completely different corporate career or I'd do something different. It was just so kind of like coincidental uh, that my mate at the time, 
he was coming back from the States and he's like, we used to DJ when we were younger. And uh, he's like, oh, you're a DJ. And we're like, you know what? Why not? You know, let's just do it for a bit, see what comes of it and whichever else. Um, obviously, building that out, you start to realize that it's not all fun uh, being a DJ. Um, there's a lot of preparation left, right, and in between. Uh, a lot of late nights and the likes. Um, but we were kind of like on a journey where we, we got to a, a really good point uh, where we had a great name for ourselves. Um, and we, you know, looking at a year ahead, it was going to be, you know, our best year. And then obviously just COVID hit. Um, so at the time we were building out um, just different things that we could increase the average sale uh, for each event. So uh, we had, you know, the few items that you could rent. And one of those items was LED neon signs. And in essence, it was just like, um, he at the time was like, you know what, I'm going to go study. Um, and I was like, well, well, can I just take this element of the business and just work on that? He's like, yep. So obviously just had a little severance there and, um, build out Kings and Neon. And what was the potential you saw with those neon signs? Cause you imagine a lot of that still live event, you know, physical in-person signage people yeah. were at home, like where was the opportunity you saw there versus, um, you know, like a business, I guess it doesn't require that in-person presence. Like DJing was off the table, but yeah. anything in person was still pretty um, shut down in, yeah. in Australia. So, so what was it about Neon Signs that really grabbed you? To be honest with you, Derek, it's actually not strategic at all. Like this this whole part of it isn't strategic. And I guess it's like, um, it's funny, right? Because I, you know, I talk on stages and different things like that. And people are looking for that juice, you know, where it's like the juice, literally Kings of Neon is survival. Like it is out and out, like a survival element. I, uh, uh like you, you had like your whole kind of income just wiped. So yeah, six, nine months of gigs are just off the table. You know, I've got two kids, you know, under the age of five and I've got a wife that doesn't work got a couple of mortgages and I don't ha literally don't have an income. Uh, all we had was the, the hope that maybe we'll get the $750 a week, right? Which, um, you put all those things together, you know, you go backwards pretty quickly. So it was just, it was literally, I was like, look, I've got a couple of months to start making money out of this. So I came home to my wife at the time and I said, you know what? Like if we could make an extra 50 grand out of this a year, and just supplement um, until, you know, DJing comes back or I find something else and that's going to be that. Um, it was like we were kind of getting a bit of an idea when we were doing gigs. Like a few people were like, oh, can you make this sign for me? Um, and we'd done a handful of custom signs, but it was very much brand new, hustle, get it done, get money in the door for the family. And, and that was that. And so what was that first 12 months like? Again, dealing with COVID, dealing with uncertainty, bills to pay. Um, what was that sort of journey like? Yeah, so it was, it was, uh, it was both fun and, and, and a hustle, right? Because I think our first proper full year, we ended up doing around uh, just under a million dollars in revenue uh, for the first year. So it was fun, like, um, but it was uh, like I remember... I was, for the first couple of months, it was just me. Um, we had a warehouse for the DJ events company that we kind of, I just sort of grabbed a little corner and I didn't uh, abide by COVID lockdown laws. And I just went in 
to that warehouse each day and worked by myself on the laptop. And in essence, I was just um, just learning my way around e-commerce, um, learning to how to optimize the site, how to increase, you know, obviously the amount of products on the site, um, doing sort of cold outreach, uh, hustling on LinkedIn, uh, all the above, right? And I, I started to get a little bit of a runway and I was just getting kind of, doing weeks of around $5,000, um, which was pretty good. And um, I made a pitch, made a pitch to Mark, who actually works with me now, uh, still to this day. And he worked with me at Michael Hill previously. And this is about three or four months in. And I said, hey, look, you know what, Mark? I know you want to get out of your existence of what you currently do at the moment. Um, I've got this thing called Kings of Neon. It's either going to be something but a worst case scenario, we'll get to have a bit of fun. We'll learn a new business and we'll do something different for a period of our life. I said, I, p- I could pay you for three months after then we're screwed. So, um, and that's like a, a good example of kind of the same thing that happened on repeat. Uh, I got a bit lucky in the sense that, uh, there was government incentives at the time. Uh, so I hired some people on, uh, traineeships, uh, which gave sort of some offset to to the wages and the likes. Um, but it was very much money in, money out. So whatever money I had, I'd just go and reinvest. I wasn't paying myself at the time as well. I was just trying to make it really lean. I was doing things outside of Kings uh, to sort of um, bring the money in as well as the 750 a week and it just made it, made it work. And, you know, you grew 155% last financial year. Um, growing to 4.62 million in annual revenue, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So, so was there a point where it real an inflection point where it really sort of hit, um, you know, or, or something that you did that sort of drew that uh, uh, drove that rapid growth, or, or was it just a compounding effort o- over time that sort of kept occurring? Yeah, I think uh, like early days, we definitely jumped on a little bit of the trends um, of neon of LED neon. Uh, but then obviously last year, a lot of businesses didn't grow that sort of amount. So we, uh, made a considerable effort to, uh, launch into the U S as well, uh, which drove a lot of that result. So I think we grow, uh, looking at the numbers just before we grew around 30% in Australia, uh, but then we grew 210% in the U S so all in all that sort of crippled, crippled to that sort of growth there, but yeah. And how did the U.S. come on your radar? Was it people found your website and you're just shipping a lot of orders there and you thought we should put more energy there? Or did you say, look, this is a, a bigger market, they, they do more events or they, they're more sort of into the neon signs? Or how did the U.S. kind of pop up? I think uh, if you go and dive into the e-commerce mind of every Australian, it is my market isn't big enough for me. And, and really that's where it came from. Um, it was just more in the sense of, wouldn't it be cool to go and launch in the US? Um, obviously we saw the, um, just the trends on Google trends. So it's 11 times the amount of search terms on LED neon sign or neon sign as a whole. And that for me was, was enough for obviously profitable and we were growing in, in Australia. Um, we were curious and. You know, I guess for us, we're only just beginning. Um, obviously, we've had good growth to here, but this is the start of our journey. What about the competitive landscape? Like, so a lot of Australian businesses think if they could crack North America or UK and Europe, like they're such bigger markets. But 
you know, bigger markets, also more competition, the tyranny of distance. Were there challenges that were different to the Australian market beyond just, you know, the distance for, for marketing and shipping and distribution? Yeah, I guess, uh, first of all, it sucks. So unless you're willing to, uh, <laughs> unless you're willing to do the hours on different time zones, it's, it's not really, uh, it's not really worth it to be completely honest. Um, so that is the biggest complexity is the fact that we've got a largely custom product and we have to talk to our customer a lot of the time uh, to sell them those particular signs. But yeah, uh, look, we went into the US and Australia funded the US expansion. It wasn't wasn't a profitable exercise um, by no way, shape or means for at least the first six to nine months. Um, and then we started to flatline after that period. But it, uh, yeah, look, I mean, you've got complexities around taxes, you've got complexities around setting up entities, uh, you've got uh, issues around, what am I trying to say here? Your banking, insurances, uh, they like litigation over there, uh, all of the above. Um, obviously costs more to ship there. Uh, you know, obviously if there's any issues with signage uh, in the ways of it being distributed throughout the US, you know, you're going to have to be on those time zones and um, then you're trying to call them off an Australian number and it's, yeah, it's like, it was a little bit silly to be completely honest, but uh, we got through it and, and we're there. And um, did you sort of put staff on over in the US or is it still essentially an Australian business but just selling globally at this point? Yeah, so we've got uh, three sales staff in the US now, so on the ground. Uh, running that team there as well yeah so as well as like we kind of got a global footprint now so we've got some guys in guys and girls in the uk um so we kind of map out that whole time zone piece and, and what were some of the other big challenges just managing that growth you know it's exciting you're becoming a multinational business you're, you're getting traction you're, you're winning awards but what were some of the, the most painful or challenging parts for you as well um, you know, you've managed uh, in big corporates, you know, big P&Ls, but when it's your own business and it's it's rapidly growing, what were some of those difficult parts? Yeah, I guess like uh, the main one that sort of stands out is always cash flow. Uh, cash flow is always a, an ongoing sort of battle uh, for new businesses and and how we sort of grow and, and develop. So as I explained to it, actually just today, it's I guess having a, being an entrepreneur or in small business, it's almost like having a a daily mortgage stress like you're in daily mortgage stress every single day having a small business because you're seeing what's coming in what's coming out and uh you're sort of doing those calculations on the go especially when you're spending um you know multiple thousands of dollars a day on advertising uh, to to get those businesses as well um look which is a great segue into marketing um not having a background in e-commerce not having a background in marketing as such uh, definitely, it was a learning curve. Um, I worked with many of uh, different different agencies. Um, some knew how to run an agency and knew how to run ads and knew how to do SEO. And some were just literally there to have a bit of a ride and to take a bit of money um, as well. So it was like a lot of, it feels like this kind of ebb, ebb and flow to some degree where... Um, you know, it's like you kind of get to a new level, um, you learn a bunch in that period, and then you think you can jump again, but you haven't learned exactly what you need to know yet. So you go down a little bit, then you learn it, and then you get to go up to the next level sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, pretty much in every facet from 
web dev to customization to banking to taxes to you know staffing and you know the complexities of having staff in different locations um yeah it's it's a constant battle but not one that i would uh trade up for sure and did you ever think of using a different business model that wouldn't require so much marketing knowledge, like more resellers or distributors? So you're more of a you know manufacturer, but you're not the one having to um, you know get the end user clients. So you always saw the value in you having direct market feedback and control of your own distribution and and sales. Yeah, I guess like um, there's been different evolutions of Kings and Aon over over the the few years, but largely. I guess where our what has become, I guess, our superpower in this space is the fact of our ability to sell to B two B, and is our is our salesmanship and our customer service. So it's where I take a lot of of my experience from previous life as well as is, is in customer service. So I think we'll always lean into that customer element and the face to face one on ones. Yeah, and, and so the, the neon signs seem like it everywhere now, which, you know, is a lot of your great work, but also I imagine part of it's riding away where there's a trend and, you know, people see it and they like it as a natural sort of viral aspect where people then want it. How do you balance riding a, a trend like that, that everyone sort of likes it, while also keeping an eye out for what's the next trend in signage or if you consider yourself a, a marketing slash signage slash, you know, event and physical sort of um, promotional business, how do you balance riding the success with handling the next wave and not you know losing as you know the trends and the fashion sort of shift into different things yeah i guess you i guess the quickest way to answer that is you just can't be content in any way shape or form it's really it's quite easy to go and get lost in the weeds and and be happy with where you're at currently i think every great business if you go and uh, break it down um has diversified, has been innovative and has changed their model in some way, shape or form, whether that's in a short term, every two or three years or over a period of five or 10, um, we're definitely sort of focused on being innovative in the industry. Uh, now that we've got revenue and obviously we can um, invest some of that revenue as well, um, we're focusing on the technology piece of signage as a whole, um, but then we're also focusing on diversifying our range. So not just being the kings of neon, but the kings of signage as a whole. And fundamentally, do you see yourself as a signage company, a marketing company, an in-person activation, an experiential company? How do you sort of categorize it in your own head, which then shapes, imagine, what you pursue and, and where you focus on? Yeah, so we're a signage company, 100%. Yeah, so we're a signage company. Um, so we're here to disrupt the global powerhouses, so to speak. So the signoramas and the sine waves of, of the world, there's a lot of uh, uh, dinosaur elements to that whole industry. And we like to see ourselves and we are uh, disrupting that industry. And we're going to go in there and we're going to shake it up and, and we're going to take their, their lunch money. And, and what's the biggest aspect? Is it, you know, the, the neon, obviously, but being more custom, better service, being able to offer a lower price point so people can change their signage more frequently or do more signage or, or where do you see those sort of again most people don't see signage as a, a dynamic fast-moving industry so so where do you yeah. sort of see those sort of opportunities for disruption i think it is in the sense of making it accessible and affordable for people um i think the reason why we don't think of signage as in our direct peripheral kind of thinking is the fact that we still have to walk into a store and organize it 
So ultimately, where we want to disrupt that whole industry is take that away. And what we're doing at the moment, um, you know, the fact that we, you know, got the F1 in Las Vegas contract, like literally the whole strip of F1 was lit up, you know, you have Ferrari, Lotus, Pirelli, neon signs through the whole strip of F1. So how does a small Australian company, you know, um, and it was one of our guys that kind of sits here in our team here on the Central Coast as well, sell to arguably one of the largest organizations in the entire world. And why, like, why us, you know, it's, and I think it's, it's just the fact that it's like, there's this match between creating a really positive experience in online through B2B e-commerce and, um, just connecting it with the customer. So everyone's still focused on B2B being offline, but there isn't, there is a wave coming through in B2B e-commerce. I was looking at a trend statistic the other day, um, that, in 2020, we were at $8.8 billion in B2B e-commerce. And by 2030, it's meant to be $33 billion in e-commerce, just in North America alone. So you kind of look at those statistics and what that is, is accessibility. Um, and what that is, is breaking down um, those barriers. People don't want to speak to someone on the phone. People don't want to walk into a shop. They want to do it all in the comfort of their own home, own business, et cetera. Yeah, and B two B like software has definitely moved. Software as a service has moved very much online and remote. And people spend a lot of money on enterprise grade software, but you're right. A lot of B two B services or things people are still used to a very offline sort of 1980s buying and selling experience, and not being able to look at a website and pick you know off a, a website. They're used to um, you know very traditional sort of methods of buying. I guess non-software, basically in a B two B environment. Yeah, it's very, very manual. Well, we used to we used to buy fridges at Harvey Norman all of uh, well, that would be like six eight years ago, right? Um, or the last two or three fridges I've bought have all been online. You know, so it's just like you know, even those elements, these big sort of pieces, where conceptually our mind just thinks that we have to go into somewhere to do that final package, you know, final product, uh, placement, you know, whatever it may be, uh, you can essence, yeah, take away that complexity. We've been Tesla, right? Selling cars and pre-sales direct to consumer, you know, it's completely, uh, I think made a lot of other car brands think about, do they need a big dealership network? Could they sell direct and finance direct or through a third party? Do they need you know, physically in person for large consumer items, or like you said, sort of equivalent or lower price business to business items. Costco is selling cars now too, right? Um, they sell a lot of things. I think solar yeah. panels and coffins, basically, with just the here's a thing and buy it. So, um, yeah, and even um other yeah other add-ons and large home purchases, yeah, basically yeah. direct yeah. through them without um yeah without all the sort of specialty distributors. So there you go. And then I guess this is all part of it, right? It's like, how to, how can we bring customization and B2B to e-commerce in the easiest way, shape or fashion? So that's that's our mission. That's our mission with Kings and Ian. Yeah, and it gives you that global footprint as well, right? Because you're not limited to your retail network or your local distribution. You've got, you know, global customers that you can work with and ship out the product to them. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, and so I imagine you're dealing with a lot of business owners all, all over the world and all these different sort of um, industries and businesses within Australia and, you know, having uh, done a bit of business in the US, what, what do you see Australian entrepreneurs doing really well? And then where do you see 
you know, further room for improvement um, within the Australian sort of entrepreneurial startup scale-up sort of ecosystem? I think um, it's almost like what we're good at and not good at all in one. So Australian uh, entrepreneurs are hard working in my eyes. Um, I go and sort of look at um, a lot of what we're, you know, I spent some time in San Diego uh, last week and it was for Retail Fest. Uh, and a lot of entrepreneurs there, a lot of Aussie entrepreneurs and US entrepreneurs. And you could tell just the Aussie uh, Aussies like, hey, there were hustlers, right? Like, I think there's a, the element that Aussies have over the US counterpart is we've got like 8 million people to work with, you know, and then the US have got like 200 million people to work with in the sense of like buyers for that particular product. And there's a sense that a lot of these businesses aren't that amazing in the US, but they can still get to a 20, 30 million dollar revenue just purely based on the size um, and the diversification of just that market. So I think we're really hard workers. And if you can get to 1 million, you know, even half a million, you possibly could, could have got to 10 million in the US, in my opinion, anyway. Um, but then on the flip side, where we sort of fall down is probably, uh, it's not in our DNA. So... Uh, like I'm a big sort of advocate of bringing more education around uh, e-commerce um, and that whole space. Uh, our, not to get political, but our government focuses a lot more on manufacturing um, and that sort of technology. And if we are thinking, thinking about technology, we focus on a med tech or an ag tech or something like that. Uh, but there's a there's billions and billions of dollars out there, especially in European countries where in the UK, Germany, uh, they've got large sort of hubs where they're building these amazing brands and they've just got so much more um, knowledge in essence, um, just just purely based on the fact that there's these ecosystems around it. So I think we fall down in the ways of our knowledge base uh, just based on, you know, I guess where we are um and sort of the dynamics of our country but then i think we're hard working so we get through it and, and did you see a particular trend with the australians who are over in the us like again obviously the market size is a big draw the the work ethic the ambition the vision is probably a bit bigger if they've gone all the way from australia to the us is there anything else that you sort of or maybe lessons you saw people in the us doing um, yeah, they've got access to a bigger market. Um, they're like it's a lot more clustered and maybe working together, learning, iterating faster. Were there any other sort of lessons that you saw um, when you're over there? Yeah, I mean, it's um, like like access to even like things like tech is really quite interesting. Um, you know, even me being there uh, in that ecosystem, you know, there was a bunch of new technology businesses that were just happy to work with uh, different different businesses not even for a large fee as well so there's a lot of early entry to market technology that's always sort of diversifying and i think we get that after the fact when it comes to australia um oh look i mean um in the sense of differences no not, not necessarily not really i think it's just purely based on size and scope uh where you'll get a lot larger businesses over there yeah, you've just got a bigger market. Like, I imagine for you, you know, if there's maybe 2 million businesses in Australia, 
you know, half or two thirds of sole traders, maybe there's, you know, 5% of that that you could genuinely sell. So, I mean, you can sell to consumers, of course, but realistically, if you're selling, you know, retail and event sort of signage, right, there's a, quite a small number when you really get down to it of people who can get, you know, significant sort of custom signage within Australia by itself. Sure, yeah. And it's, look, there's only so many people searching for a neon sign and then it has to be split up into the amount of businesses that are already there. So it's a very uh, competitive market and yeah, you're opening up the playing field and um, yeah, there's just a lot more abundance there. You know, even with our product, um, our average sale is you know almost one and a half times higher in the US than it is Australia, just purely based on the fact that they need more signs for their event. So there's just a larger average order value. So, And did the Americans, you know, did they have any positive, negative attitude dealing with Australians or they just thought, yeah, that's great. You're over there. You're doing business there. They, there's no sort of, they're not, you know, pro or anti, you know, anything. Uh, no, not at all. They're like super supportive. I think it's interesting. Um, there's a lot of kind of misconceptions with every single different country and you know having gone to the us or china or whatever it may be we have these sort of as Aussies, we have like different preconceptions about how it is um and what they're like and yeah they're a bit loud and arrogant i call them onions uh the us so like you have to peel back the layers to get to their true self but you know they're always super friendly um you're a point of difference over there as well right so there's not a heap of aussies in e-commerce or that are entrepreneurs so um, they always like appreciate the energy and 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 the vibe that you bring and and are just a different kind of way of looking at things as well. So, if anything, I've only had positive experiences over in the US. And so, if you were chatting to someone right now who's sort of eighteen to twenty, and maybe they're a bit like you, they've got all these ideas, they've got a lot of dreams, but they don't really know. Corporate pays good money, but it's frustrating. They've got you know they're a bit sort of maybe they're starting their first corporate job or they finished high school and they don't know which direction to head. Um, what would you say to someone like that? I would say don't worry about the money because you don't actually need it and just go and work with the person that inspires you. So whether you listen to podcasts or whether you listen, you know, read books or whatever it may be, um, you know, just as a hypothetical even, um, you know, if a young entrepreneur in you know, my direct kind of uh, space here on the Central Coast or you know, around Newcastle and reached out to me and said, hey, you know what, all I want to do is learn, you know, all I want to do is learn, I want to soak it up, I want to get an idea for the for the environment and how to do it, right? Um, I think that's what I'd, I'd say to my previous self is just like, you've got time to go and buy the houses, you've got time to go and, you know, save money, you don't need the cool car because the cool car doesn't really do anything other than get you to A to B, right? But if you can, you know, increase your knowledge in your head and be around the right people um, that are pushing out, you know, that positivity and, and entrepreneurialism into the world and and want more from themselves, then that's obviously going to be a great uh, lesson for you for the future. Um, and I think, I think of things like building blocks, right? It's almost like if you can get the foundations right when you're younger, and have good uh, mentors around you, that only puts you in a better place for the future. Yeah, so really optimizing in those early years for learning rather than pure earning, because that can take you to pathways that, like you said, they pay well because, you know, maybe they expect certain things or it's not really a fit or they pay well in the short term, but there's not the long term opportunities or upside that there are in other areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I accepted um, 
like a a less than ideal work place uh just based on an extra 10 or twenty thousand dollars a year which you know put me in a i could have been in a lot better position if i just took twenty thousand dollars a year less at the start yeah and if, if we go back to kings of neon and we're looking at the intermediate like five-year term you've mentioned you know evolving with different trends You've already expanded your footprint internationally and on the ground, having people in the US and UK. Where do you see the medium term direction of the business going? Um, I'd really love to just shake up the whole signage market. Uh, we'll start to shake it up this year. Uh, there's a piece of technology that we we're bringing out, which will shake things up as well. And honestly, I'd I'd probably like to to uh, to take uh, yeah a, a big lion's share of the signage market as a whole. So got big growth brands and. Um, and we see this as a large business in Australia and possibly globally. And yeah, we just want to, yeah, we want to disrupt. We want to mix it up and obviously get that that signage to more accessible uh, points and, and more affordable as well. And, and so what would the biggest misconception be? Someone's got a physical pre uh, business. Um, yeah, they've got some signage. Is it the, you know, how long a neon sign lasts for? Is it the quality? Is it how customizable? Is it the cost effectiveness? What are the biggest barriers that people are surprised to find out if they've never sort of had a neon sign before? I guess um, people are, are confused about just how to how to plug them in, how they work, um, how easy or hard they are to sort of hang up or install. I think there's a misconception with signage that it's, it's difficult, um, but the thing with LED neon signs is comes plug and play. You just literally plug it into the wall and turn it on. It's just like a lamp um, to some degree. So, but we've got this, we, we sort of misconceive signage as a whole, um, but in essence, it's it's a customized lamp or a customized, um, you know, light really. So, um, yeah, super simple. Um, but then obviously with LED, people sort of still relate it to neon and neon gas and and glass um and the traditional glass blowing so that's probably another hard thing that um it's really like a trend that sort of came through when leds got called neon um so that's a bit confusing for people as well so people worry it would be fragile in a venue and it could break or or you know it's that sort of thing yeah, fragile. That's for a reason why we sell them a lot of the time is because they aren't fragile um, and they don't break too often. And, you know, um, even, you know, the reason why we're moving everything to LEDs as well is to obviously use less less energy um, and less consumption of electricity. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a complexity. It's very much an educational process to sell these signs. And what about in the consumer market? I imagine they're more low budget people just want a consumer thing, or is that some part of your business where someone's having a, a, a engagement party and they want their name on a sign, you sort of have a, a self-serve simple model for that, or you really, again, focus most of your energy on the sort of business market for like ongoing signage, not a one day signage for a, you know, a party or something like that. Yeah. So we've got a, uh, we've got like over a thousand products, you know, pre-made sort of designs on our on our website and then we've also got to create your own tools so you can go and put in your text you can have a derek uh a neon sign uh you could have your kid's name you could have uh, your wedding uh details whatever it may be and it's very easy for people to sort of go on you know type a few things in and get a price and check out and literally they can have their their sign within a week um by the time so yeah it's uh 
very accessible to the consumer market. Uh, but I guess our business as a whole, uh, because we focus on quality and service, it's more geared towards uh, B2B and, and businesses that want uh, longevity out of their piece and also uh, the quality, um, both from a customer experience and um, yeah, the product as well. And you mentioned the evolving B2B e-commerce and buying experience. So do you see a future where the B2B buying could be as easy as that sort of B2C one you've mentioned? Someone uploads their logo, they fill in a form and basically it is a sort of self-serve pay and, and get your sign sent to you? Yeah. So I literally, uh, I'm not sure if, if you follow me on LinkedIn, Derek, but I literally posted yesterday that uh, we've had teed up with um, a company that's been 18 months in research and development uh, to do exactly that. So we're pretty excited that we'll be able to uh, launch that product um, to the market at scale. And literally that'll be able to happen. So you'll be able to upload a logo and check out within minutes. And, and, you know, complete a substantial sort of B2B transaction in a, yeah, any time of the day or night, um, in a friction for any sort of manner like that. That's it, mate. Do you want to invest? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's exciting. I think there is a trend. Like I said, software is often ahead of the curve. So if you're yeah. building self-serve buying software, you get a free trial, you upgrade, or, you know, you have one conversation. If that, sometimes if you've used, you know, Salesforce at your past company, next companies want to click and buy it because you already get it. Um, and you understand it. So I think, yeah, pushing that into a non-software product is uh, is the evolution of B2B services and lots of B2B buying in the future. It's really like, it's taking out the the constrictions of purchasing. Because again, like B2B is very, you know, we might have to, you know, you give me a call or you give Kings and Neon a call and you get Steve, right? And just say hypothetically, you hate the name Steve. You don't want to speak to a Steve. Like you're like, it just brings up all these negative thoughts in your head. And you're like, oh, Steve. And he goes, oh, you know what? He sounds a bit arrogant. I'm not sure if he really gets it, yada, yada, yada. But if you can learn and make all those decisions and choices in the comfort of your home and learn about the whole sort of process and, and fully feel at ease with um, what, you, what you're ordering as well, then how good, right? Like, you know, you don't have to talk to anyone. You don't have to send them multiple emails or whatever else. You can check our reviews. You know, they obviously say we do what we do and 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 we are the best. And then you can have the confidence that you're going to get your business sign, whether it's one piece or 500 pieces within um, a matter of weeks, not months. Yeah, that's very exciting. And, and do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave the audience with? I guess like, you know, for you, like obviously, um, like your audience, you know, what do you think would show the, bring the most value? Um, if I haven't said it already, is there anything particular that, you know, I haven't uh, instilled a wisdom on or, you know, uh, um, I think your point about, um, someone who's interesting, interested in entrepreneurship, finding a good entrepreneur in their area to sort of work with and learn from, I mean, Maybe someone who might be young, they might think, well, what value would I have? I'm 20, I'm, you know, second year university. I would love to work with someone like you. Maybe they're in wherever, Adelaide, Brisbane. Yep. What would their sort of value proposition do you think be um, that would be, you know, easy for a 20-year-old to say to, you know, an entrepreneur to, I'm going to show up, I want to learn, I want to work, um, that would make an entrepreneur say, all right, like, yeah, I'll give you a go and, you know, I'm busy, there's a lot going on, but yeah, you can come and learn and... I think, I don't think I'm necessarily um, unique in this stance, but 
all entrepreneurs want is people to come along with the, on the journey with them. So if you unequivocally go on the journey with an entrepreneur and you are quote unquote all in, you know, so you're not out there to, you know, necessarily make a buck or a name for yourself and, and you've got your heart in the game and you, you can show that you are genuinely interested. I think that's the, the key point, you know, you just, I think, you know, I remember early days, uh, for, for high school, I went and did, uh, like I worked on golf courses being the greenskeeper, right? And I wasn't interested in greenskeeping whatsoever. It just, I just heard that they finish at one o'clock and that was the easiest kind of uh, job that I could do for work experience. And I think that's the wrong way to go about it. The right way is to say, this is who I am. This is who I wish to be. And this is how I want to learn. And, and whatever you kind of give me, I'm going to be a sponge. And then I want to show value to you uh, all in all. I think um, we've got a very much a culture of sort of growing within. Um, Bree, who runs our US team, is all of 20, 21 years old. So um, I, I think anyone's got the ability, and that's the old self in me, where we can obviously, um, that guy at Fitness First saying you need to go back and grow up and then come back again. I want to make sure in my you know, business that I don't have those sort of same metrics placed on anyone outside of their ability. So just I just go there and try and be the best at one thing. Just try and champion one thing. Um, ask the entrepreneur what's a problem that they've got at the moment that they don't have anyone to solve, you know? So if it's like, say for instance, it's me and I'm like, I've got a gap at the moment for someone to look after my Shopify store. So just say, hypothetically, if you ask that question to the entrepreneur, you're like, well, what would it mean if I could look after your Shopify store for you at no cost? I'd be like, I may love that, you know, and you bring value and it might not be the perfect solution, but I think entrepreneurs are happy for people giving it a go to make mistakes. And, and like that team member of yours, who you said she's young, she's handling for the US market, the other side of the world. What did you sort of see in her that you thought, yeah, I'll, is it just, I'll give her a go, worst case scenario, um, we don't get exact results in a couple of months, we try something else, or you sort of saw something in her that made you think, no, she can really, you know, do well in this role? Uh, Self-accountability. That's probably... The, one of the largest things that it's missing uh, as a whole in the world, I think, it's to be accountable and to uh, take ownership over the results um, as yourself. So even if other people are involved in it, uh, if you take the accountability as like, this was my job and this is how I can control the situation, um, yeah, you can really do anything because this everything becomes learning. No one's looking to sort of shoot anyone down. So, yeah, Bree's got the ability to sort of look everything holistically and not bring emotion into a conversation. And that way she was able to learn and she's learned really quickly. So that's probably the main thing that she's done. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time, Steve. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. True of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.